Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Sherry, one of the things that we try to do with this podcast is to have a variety of topics that we cover when we welcome guests on to join us. When you and I first started doing the podcast together, writing together, even just talking about what we thought this might be, I I don't know what your goal was. I don't know if you had a goal necessarily, but my goal was, gosh, I hope that by sharing our story, we can help other couples to get through the process a little faster. Not that we would fix their problems for them, but that maybe that they would see what we went through and say, oh, that's the same thing I'm going through maybe I can learn something from the experience these people had. Uh, did you have any preconceived notions about what we were trying to do? Um, well, initially when the podcast started, I didn't think I would be a part of it since it was you and Jason. <laughs> so I didn't really have any plans for the podcast. So um, my goal and my hope is that we have lots of good guests that kind of help tell their stories and, and educate our listeners if they're a uh, a specialist so I definitely my I say my goal is guest yeah right less talking for you less talking for me (laughs) and lots of good stories from other people yeah well so it it definitely my goal definitely shifted I I started to realize that whether that it's not about necessarily saving the marriage for a lot of people it's about their own personal recovery as the loved one of an alcoholic and whether the marriage survives that or not sometimes the best choice for people is to move on and divorce is a very viable and healthy option. And so we've tried to have guests that are in a variety of positions, people that are in the middle of the depths of you know, active alcoholism, uh, people that have moved on from alcohol either because their loved one has gotten sober or through divorce, they've, they've made the hard decision that they need to separate themselves from the alcoholic. And we've certainly had a guest or two that have, you know, they're well into the process of recovering their alcoholic marriage and they've stayed together. And I am just super pleased. I feel like it had been a while since we had someone that fell into that last category. And I'm just thrilled to death that we have Karen joining us today. Karen is uh, just a role model, uh, her enthusiasm her energy, what she's learned and her willingness to share what she's learned. It's just so engaging. And she's here to talk today with us. And her marriage is in the, in the midst of surviving uh, alcoholism on the other side, on the recovery side. And we're so blessed to have Karen with us. Hi, Karen. Hi. Thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for inviting me. I wasn't I'm just glad blowing, to be here. <laughs> I wasn't just blowing smoke. You are so positive and uplifting. And, and whenever we're on video calls with you and we've got people uh, that are on with us that are struggling or are further back in the process that are just trying to figure things out, you, you not only share your experience, but you, you do so in a really positive manner that I just think gives people the idea that they too can do this and they can survive this and that they're going to be okay. And, um, just love your enthusiasm and your, your energy. So thanks for sharing it with us here on the podcast today. Thank you. I appreciate that. 
Karen, I want to start with something that you shared with us just recently. You you wrote a letter. I don't want to I don't want to describe it too much because I want you to talk about the process. You wrote a letter to your mom and you read that to us. And I, I'm not asking you to read that here now, but I want you to talk a little bit about the process. Why did you write a letter to your mom? What was that all about? Well, first of all, the writing has really helped me de deepen, I believe, in you know what I used to believe, what I don't believe anymore, what got me where I was. And my mom stayed married to an alcoholic for 50 years until she died. And, um, I had as witnessing her not given her enough credit until I walked in her shoes. And I just, and you know, she's a mom and a woman and, you know, religious. And I think in that role, women are, you know, taken for granted anyway, but we could see how nutty she kind of was and how she couldn't be direct sometimes. And we kind of, and I had, I'm talking about my sister's hair and me, but I had kind of judged her on that because um, she, she couldn't be present with me some of the time. And now that I have walked in her shoes, I have such reverence oh, and appreciation for her because I know how hard it is. And for me, uh, when I started in recovery, the one thing you know, I had trauma brain and I was so strong in my role that I couldn't even admit I'd been traumatized to some degree. And the one thing I could not get to was just tears. Mm -hmm. And it's really weird for me to be jealous of other people that can cry, you know, because I know that the crying feels terrible when you're doing it, but there's such a relief with it because it kind of opens your heart. And I had stopped so much grief you know, for her, because I missed her so much because, you know, a mom is always there and she, you know, she might not be there with you, but you know, you can call her, you know, and you just know she'll care. And I didn't understand until I went through this process, um, how much she really did love me or how hard it was for her or just that, that she's in that taken for granted role. You know, you really, in, and in, in my heart of hearts, I just thought she'd always be there and you just don't know. And you guys, I don't, I don't cry, I'm not a crier, but anyway, um, it, just, it just deepened my love for her and my appreciation for her. And I just have so much more respect for her than I've ever had. And I just really, and I know she knows because I have that connection thing going on, but I think she was up in heaven waiting for me. <laughs> you know, that's kind of how she was. And she tried so hard. And I know, you know, other people have said that about me. Oh, Karen, you're like the ever ready bunny. You know, you're always ready to go and take up the new challenge. And I think that mothers get so unappreciated and what in my heart of hearts where would society be at all and it's not just women that do the nurturing sometimes it's the man and I give him credit for that but we get taken for granted where would society be without nurturing and support and love you know where where would we be and why aren't the least appreciated the most appreciated 
And maybe that's too much, but it just really deepened me and set my tears free. And I'm just so grateful that I, I had that awareness, you know, and well, it was a gift. It was a gift for me. You, you've, you've set Sherry's tears free on this <laughs> end, which um, but I love Sherry's tears. Our, yeah. <laughs> our listeners know that's not in infrequent but I don't think she prepared to cry this week no. because we were going to have a guest on but it's such a beautiful story we hear people all the time say and and this is foreign to me um but they say that they just can't cry you know one of the things we hear people say is they're afraid to cry because they're afraid once they open the floodgates they'll never be able to get it back in control again I hear that that's a little bit different than what you're saying no. um, but the fact that this story released those tears I mean, what a relief that must have been to write this. And the fact that you know in your heart that she she hears your words and she's she's been there with you as you've read the letter. Um, that is just, that is so incredibly beautiful. And I'm so happy for you for the re relief that that has to have brought. It was so healing for me. And here's the thing is sometimes before, this is my secret, before I get on a writing call, it's it, I always I, I've always been a writer, but I haven't always shared it. It was one of those things that I just carried close to my heart. So sometimes I will read it and record it before I get on the call. I had to do it five times before I could even get through the writing. <laughs> so anyway, but it was so cathartic for me, and I really appreciate that prompt. And that it, you know, what am I denying still, you know? Oh God, I loved her so much and I miss her so much. And I don't think that goes away. And just to, to be able to express that truth, you know, that she had so much more meaning for me in my life than I probably shared with her. You know, I loved her, but you know, she, she had some weird stuff. And <laughs> sometimes it, you know, but I do understand, you know, when you're you're living in a situation with someone who's toxic or unhealthy or not telling you the truth, you develop some weird behaviors yourself. And so I was able to just Absolutely. give her grace for that. Yeah. That's that's just great. Well, and so many of us that marry um, addicts have grown up with addiction in their family or within their own um, household with one of the parents being. Um, an alcoholic. So I know sometimes I would, you know, not, not rightly appreciate my mom for what she put up with. And she did step away from the marriage when I was two. And then I also have to remember like what my sister saw different, who's, you know, was eight at the time. So I just, I feel like I don't give them enough um, credit for what they went through with my father. So your writing made me feel very much more appreciative. So yeah. thank, thank you. you. Yeah, that, that, that's absolutely right. Let's, when you when you bring up the sibling thing, I just wanted to comment on that real quick, is that you can be one of three kids in an alcoholic home and each child is going to have a different awareness of what's really going on because when my dad came back into the picture, it was easier for me because the disease is progressive. So in some ways, I didn't see the worst of it. Mm -hmm. You know, I just didn't. And That's so everybody. Right. Yeah, we have four kids of our own and they definitely, the further away from my drinking we get, the more we can 
appreciate the different impact that it had on each of them. And so the work that we've got to do as parents going forward is different with each of them. So you're, that's an excellent point. You're absolutely right. Let's, let's back up a little bit. Um, and that, that letter to your mom was just very recently. Let's go back to the role that alcohol played in your marriage. Um, were, were you both drinkers early on? Did, did your husband's drinking kind of take off on you? Um, what you, you just, let me just stop asking questions and ask you to tell it in your words. Okay, so when um, we got together, and I have to be conscious here, <laughs> um, I was a single mother of three, okay? okay? And he had been someone that I kept running into. It's like the universe had a plan, you know, this guy, and we were friends, you know, and I liked him. And one of the first things he ever said to me was, I respect you so much because you're this single mother. And I thought, whoa, <laughs> that's nice, right? And um, I didn't know, he, I mean, we'd lived, you know, a while. I think I was 34, that's not old, but you know, when, when we got together or something like that. And um, he also, um, at that time was married. Okay. And I just liked him. And, um, but we kept running into each other. And then somewhere down the line, he had gotten divorced and I didn't cause that. I wasn't. <laughs> and he, um, I still thought he was a great guy and he had two boys himself and he was picking them up and visiting them and paying support and seemed to really like my kids. So he was available. Did you, guys, did you guys all get together and watch the Brady Bunch together? No, but we should have. And I always did want to like form a musical group, you know? So anyway, so um, things were really good. And in, in, I'll tell myself a little bit, I, he did not appear to have a drinking problem at all to me. And I was wise to it, you know, and that was the thing where I felt like I really, cause I had done some ACA work and I had done some codependency work and I knew what to look out for, you know, it's that, you know, I, I'm, you know, whatever. So, but there, and, and I didn't know this at the time that there had been previous addiction, but he had always gone to therapy. And I couldn't understand that the therapist wouldn't see the big old elephant coming in the room. You know, I, I, I just thought he's working on it. So anyway, yeah, we would celebrate together. Like if something good happened, we'd have champagne and I love champagne or we'd have wine, you know, sometimes or a beer with dinner. And, um, but I, I was never one who for myself I mean, I, I didn't want to wake up with a hangover. I knew when I'd had too much, you know, and I think that since I could control it for me, I just assumed everybody else could control it for them. You know, I would start feeling a little loopy and I drink water or I'd eat something or I'd go to bed, you know, so it wasn't ever a problem for me, but everybody has their own physiology and their own family programming. So Oh, absolutely. So when did it start to be a problem in the relationship? What were the first kind of signs? What was that like? Well, he kind of uh, lost his happiness 
in a way. Ooh. And there was a wow, lot I've never of, heard it described that way. That's interesting. Uh, you know, there was like, I had, one of the reasons I married him is because he was emotionally available. And it was kind of like, he was really in tune with that part of him and supportive and would, and share things with me, you know, dreams. There was always another big dream though. But anyway, to just, um, we would talk a lot, but then um, I, I got pregnant because I was really good at that. And, <laughs> and, 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 and we got married. And um, then I think that that was maybe the start of, he was carrying more of the responsibility then. I don't know. It was like the stress increased for him. And I had been basically up to that point, the one who was making more money and owned her home. I mean, I was the responsible one. And I think that the shift was harder than I knew. Mm. And I think that because in his family of origin, there was an automatic, you have a, you know, stress, you drink, five o'clock, you drink, weekend, you drink. There was- I can relate to that. Hmm? Yeah, I'm familiar with that. Absolutely. I, I've heard your story. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, and I don't think, I mean, there's not a big warning poison label, you know, on, on the bottle, you know, underneath the drink me, I'm poison. And I don't think, I, I think I underestimated how progressive it gets over time, you know, and where I would drink to celebrate, I think it became that he just had to drink to get through the day. And um, he had been previously sober. Okay, during, and we're talking about a long time relationship of 24 years married by things, by the time things got really bad. Um, but he previously, you know, on our story, he'd gotten sober, you know, and gone to AA for like six months. And so, and then of course he decided he, he, he wasn't like the other guys and he didn't, <laughs> you know, and that's part of it. So um, that, that part is very common. The, the yeah. idea that, okay, I've, I've gotten, I've done some kind of a reset. I've cleared myself out. I listened to all these other stories. My story isn't as bad as those. So I should be good to go now. And I yeah. know that's something I did. It's, it's yeah. so very common. Um, gosh, if we could just get that message across to people, I think of all the heartache um, that could be saved. Oh, it'd be great. I mean, once I have you cross that line, there's no, there's no reset. There's no fixing it. That's my thing too, is like, um, you know, you, you want to believe the best. And that was my whole thing because I am optimistic and I do like to believe the best in people that I love. I thought, well, he's the only one that can decide. He must have it handled, you know? And, um, and part, and I've told this before, but our vow was tell each other the truth, right? So he was going to just always tell me the truth, you know, because I'm telling the truth. Why wouldn't he be telling the truth? You know, so um, the stress continued, job losses continued, you know, you get to the point where you've got four teenage boys at the same time, and then you're trying to make a living. And um, I think it got sneaky. And, mm -hmm. and um, there's a confidence factor in there where didn't want, he didn't want the conflict, you know, just didn't want the conflict. And when, and I had had, I'd been previously married and had some knockdown drag out fights with the previous one. And um, we didn't do that. We were polite, you know, and he, you know, but what it did, I think for him was it just made him a better liar. And, mm -hmm. and um, 
at the time that it all really, really went down, you know, I had seen him not drink for a, for a while, you know, and he had a health condition and, and I never saw him drink, you know, even if I would have a beer, you know, he but wouldn't Karen, drink one. Let me ask you a question. Let me clarify. So, so there wasn't, when, when he got sneaky was the word you used, there hadn't been a long series of he's drinking too much and you're on him about it and conflict. There'd been some mention of it. Okay. But the distance was in the relationship. Like, you know, so he'd stay up a little later than me and he was working a lot too. And so I'm not sure I knew that was going on. And when I did see it, like I, 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 you know, I think that as the spouse, you get this awareness of what they're doing, you know, you just, I'm watching. And so I knew he couldn't function on a shot, you know, but he'd be in a group and they'd have to, you know, he'd have to be part of the group and I could just see his physiology would change. And so we had had some stats about that. Yeah. And then we, I mean, there were things that, you know, in retrospect, yeah, I did confront him some of the times I would find things. And it wasn't, it wasn't constant. It didn't grow to the point where, um, cause you, like you said, you had seen, uh, that level of conflict in your first marriage. It, it didn't get no. like that. Maybe you were both a little more mature. You had experienced relationships before. And so to avoid that before it got really, really bad, he, he got sneaky is, 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 am I painting the right picture there basically? Yeah. I think he, he was just trying. I, yeah. And I think that happened over, you know, those next nine years, you know, yeah. that, didn't become more emotionally available and I couldn't understand it, but I know that's a process even in recovery uh, now, but I would like, we, there were one time we were on vacation and we had a rental car and I opened up the glove compartment. There was an empty vodka bottle in there and I had not. And I'm, are you, are you kidding me? Do you know what kind of liability there would be? You know, and that awareness, I think the biggest thing is what happens is that the awareness just slips and slips and slips and slips. And um, so, and then I wouldn't see it and then I wouldn't see it, you know? And so there were sometimes when the behavior was off and I couldn't understand it. And, you know, if I would love to be the, the me I am now going back to that poor, sweet, naive me that I was then. <laughs> And just whisk, wake up, you know, but um, of course I didn't know there was a thing and there would be processes of this where there'd be ranting and complaining about everything. You know, it was not like a fight with me usually or against me, but it'd be like everything in the world sucks, you know, and I'd be thinking, we've got a really good life. You know, I love my family. The kids are coming over, you know, and I, we had such a different reality. I couldn't understand it. So I did a lot of supporting him and and trying to make him see it none of that probably was even heard (laughs) but um, I saw it slip and then if I brought the attention to the slip then it would disappear and he would say oh it's temporary I'm just going through a little stressful you know and in my thinking was well he quit before he must know he can't be lying to me we've got that vow you know so all of that was really hurtful to me to come out of the gaslighting that probably a lot of it I did to myself, believing things that weren't true. Well, but it's, I don't know if I 
would let you get away with saying you did it to yourself. I mean, you, it's natural to try to trust someone, especially someone that you're married to. And you've referenced that vow a couple of times now to always be honest to each other. Um, I, so many people in situations like this talk about how they're not sure if the drinking and, and maybe the alcoholic behavior is more painful or it's the lying. The, the lying is so painful. And so I, I think it's, this is a, this is a real, you have a very interesting story in that he wasn't 100% hiding it from you. He was, you know, just kind of sneaking around. And, but if you, if you caught him, he would kind of try to explain it away and, and you would both try to just kind of move on. Am, am I getting that right? Kind of, but then at the end, okay, so he got a serious health condition, okay? He got overdosed on, uh, and stress was bad anyway, and he was always a workaholic to some degree, which is also, sure. you know, and so I think that helped him medicate, and that started, I guess, being in the death drawer, you know, or going for drives, and I, and I always wanted to believe him. And I, and then the gaslighting hurt me because it really traumatized me. But I also believed it, and that's my part of it is that I believed it. And sometimes um, I should have known. Okay, so the ranting thing—I don't know what you ask me now—but the ranting, I thought, okay, so the drinking disappeared, so I didn't see it anymore. But there was that ranting. But he had pain and the illness and agitation and I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt because I don't see the alcohol. So I think he's bipolar. I mm. think he's just gone because I don't know what it is. And I just know it's awful. I didn't know there was a thing called um, alcoholic mania. Okay. And, and th at that point, that was really freaking scary because the delusionment in the, it's just over the edge. And I was really scared. Like when you say delusionment, a lot of paranoia, like, like things are going to happen or somebody's coming to get me or something like that. That and just ranting for yeah. like hours at a time and if I tried to leave the room and not focus 100% it was like I couldn't walk away and so and I had seen that previously you know earlier and when that came back I thought well and that would attend that and then he'd run away and I'd seen that before and so um that was very scary to me you know and I don't, I don't know what I want to say about it, but that alcoholic mania continued. And even during early recovery, he had an episode like that when he was sober. And the therapist he got told him that's normal in early recovery, but I'm still like this <laughs> scared. Because, you know, it's like they become, he's ranting about everything. And, you know, everybody's crazy and just the world and, you know, and, and, and shifting persona kind of where he's going to be. Uh, one of them was, yeah, let's go to counseling because we're both smarter than the counselor and we can manipulate the counselor together. And, you know, and just, just, I don't yeah. know, but wow. it was just very painful to watch and scary. Oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, so then how did you get to the point where you realized it was alcohol he finally admitted it now this took 
Um, so this is where he, he, he kind of left in the middle of the night and there was previous leavings and then going out in the world in the middle of the night, like 1am. And, 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 and there was a lot going on with me at the time where I was, you know, my dad had just died. I was managing the estate and then I'm watching, you know, the kids and, um, I needed my sleep and, you know, so then one night I, I, I get, get this goodbye note, you know, which I have memorized, <laughs> which was shocking. So my, it's four o'clock in the morning and he's gone with a goodbye note. And then I'm very concerned because I've seen the craziness up to them. And he's been referred to a counselor, wouldn't go. He was, you know, all of the, you know, it was just too too far gone. So he ended up in a parking lot of a gas station, not far, really between the hotel and the parking lot, living there 17 days before he would admit it and go get help, which, you know, God, the universe had both our back because there are so many more tragic things that could have happened. And I just think there was a belief in him. If he couldn't control it, then no one could. And um, if he couldn't handle it on his own and he wasn't gonna tell me, and I was the person closest to him, because then I don't know, I would know. I don't know, but it was just devastating. How far into the 17 days was it before you realized where he was? With the alcohol? No, like, was he missing from you the whole 17 no. days or did you? Yeah, okay. No, he was calling everybody up like he had some grand plan. And, you know, we were taking a break and I'm like, what? You know, and there was all this storying going on. So, and I, I this is a lot for me to be sharing, but um, I just, you know, he had like his, you know, you have that address book in your phone is like, I'm going to call everybody with the letter A. I'm going to call everybody. You know, it was just ridiculous stuff. And um, I knew, I, I called a therapist and I had, I talked to kind of a therapist behind his back um, for him, you know, and just basically, because I thought it was bipolar. I didn't see the alcohol. And I don't know why I had that interrupt because why wouldn't it, when he admitted I've got an alcohol problem, I'm like, what? Because <laughs> to me, that would have been so obvious if I was drinking every day, I would, you know, so I don't know. But I was under so much stress anyway, with my dad dying and everything that I just think I couldn't focus on him and figure it out. He's calling everybody else in his address book. Did you and he have contact during that 17 days? Oh, yeah. He'd call yeah. me too. How you doing? Yeah. Or I'd call him just to check on him. You know, and a couple times, I did go up and make sure he was okay and um, bought him breakfast somewhere with other people. But I, by this time, I'm scared, you know, and I, he doesn't want to get help. And it turns out as hard as that was, that was the best approach because unless he had admitted it, it probably not would have worked for him as well. You know, cause yeah. there's that thing about, and he was also very afraid of an intervention. And I'm like, why is this guy afraid of an intervention? you know, because he knew that we should know. And some of the people, you know, in the family were wise enough to, and he confided 
but somehow I was the enemy. I had become his enemy. When, when the 17 days ended, how, how did they end? Did he just come home and say, honey, I'm home? Or, or did he go into treatment at that point? Okay, so he said, well, he, he got told by a doctor that she, you know, this doctor had it figured out and described to him, this is what your death is going to be like. And this is how it's going to affect all the people mm -hmm. that you love. And that would be highly unusual, but I love this doctor. <laughs> oh, I, I love that part of the story. And convinced him, look, and, and if that's who you're going to be, I don't want to know you. Mm. And I think that, and it gives me goosebumps, but I think that that was the one thing that he finally got, wait a minute, I'm, you know? So then he called me and admitted that. And um, he actually didn't even go into rehab right away. And there was drinking on the way to rehab, I found out later. But his deal was he was going to do that by himself. So he was going to make the call. He was going to go. Um, and he was going to check himself in. So that was the whole thing. How did you feel about that? I know. You know, the, the, the shift from the desire to, to help and to get in there, and this is someone you love and you want to fix the situation, to shifting to the, the outlook that you have now, which you so eloquently share with, with so many people in our group, Echoes of Recovery, um, that you've got to focus on yourself. You, you've got to let, each person's got to focus on themselves, and your work has to be... Um, your own personal recovery, regardless of what the drinker chooses to do. Were you there then? Or, or what was that shift like for you to say, okay, Yeah, fine. so I, I met yourself. him for lunch. You know, it was like, I'm going to celebrate and have the last margarita, you know, and I want to do it with you. So I met him for that. And then it turned out he went to the center where he wasn't going to sign himself in and everything scared him, you know, um, they take your belt and your cell phone. You got to be locked up and all that other stuff. And away. he wasn't having any of that. Because the whole thing, I think that in his mind, he thought he was giving himself freedom. He needed the freedom. You know, it's just funny. The, the, the trails that run through, you know, the brain, the stories. Um, so he didn't check in and he left again. So then the next, and he's driving himself, right? And the next day he decided he was just going to go to the neighborhood hospital and check himself in. And he's on the phone with me. I'm encouraging him. I meet him at the park, you know, to give him a hug because he's got to do this on his own. So um, he went and checked himself in. And on the way, this is the code, this is the, the watcher in me. I like to say I'm a codependent because it's a little different than codependent. But here's the thing. <laughs> on the way to the, well, there, and I'll, I'll explain about that, but on the way to the performance that I was going to the kid, the grandkids, the hospital's right there. I pulled in the parking lot and his car was there. And then um, since I was the wife, you know, and his um, his DPOA, I could go in. And I just went in and wished him luck. And he wasn't defensive. He was ready. And it, but it, 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 he had to do it his own way. And stubborn, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> but I was just, I can't tell you how relieved I was. I was just so relieved. 
there could have been in retrospect, you know, you don't know what's going on because you're in this chaos. And then in retrospect, when you look back and you're thinking, oh my God, how lucky were we? How lucky were we? Yeah. Okay. So what's the difference between a pro-dependent and a codependent? Okay. So there's a Dr. Weiss who I just really love. And he, he deals mostly with sex addiction, really. But he also, a lot of times that goes hand in hand with alcoholism or opioid use. And he says that the last thing, and he's been, he's played all the roles. So he understands, you know, like you, you don't understand someone until you look in their shoes. Mm-hmm. So he's been the addict. He's been the codependent, you know, and so he understands both roles. And he is, he says at the time that the, the one labeled the codependent goes for help, she's so traumatized, what she needs is support. She just needs to be supported because she's not getting it anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And she needs to be told, you are a wonderful wife. You know, you've been there because she's not going to get that from anybody else, you know, at that point, because there's all the healing that needs to be done. And he says that you should be treated as though you are, you know, a trauma victim because you are in trauma. And maybe it's not intentional trauma, maybe it is, but you're wounded too. And to just have, to have, that is how I would do my recovery different, would be to be more gentle. And luckily my therapist was like that with me. I would say, you know, you have to have some support for yourself. You ha- and I was lucky because she knew she, we talked just the other day and she loves that you guys are doing this and that I am doing it. She's just needed and valuable. So I wanted to tell you that. Um, she said, well, Karen, you, I was just going to say, you, you obviously learned the lessons very well from Dr. Weiss and from your own experience, because that's the way we see you interact with other people. You're very, you're very positive and caring. And, um, you know, it would be, I think it would be really easy in working with people in this, in this work to say, you need to do X, Y, and Z. We've been here. We can tell you do X, Y, and Z and everything, but you don't do that. You, you understand that people have to go through their own, you know, their own process. Yeah. And your empathy, um, just really comes out of what you just described that need to, to be caring towards people. So, and I think it's hard as the spouse of the addicted one. I mean, when it gets that bad, I mean, you're pretty disabled. And I, because I am highly sensitive and empathic that hurt, it hurt me even worse, maybe Mm. than someone else who was already shut down or I don't know. But for me to just, and you know, my mom had died my older sister had died and to just, to have had somebody just hold me and say, honey, it's okay. You know, that would have made all the difference in the world. And I think there isn't enough of that support for, you know, the wounded partner. You know, we're wounded too. And the, the oblivious of, of, of that in the recovery arena was pretty huge to me. And I think codependents get a bad rap because, you know, you get those behaviors, whether you want them or not, if you're living with an active alcoholic, because there are people that have not had a dysfunctional childhood or maybe overtly, it's just, you worry all the time. You're anxious. You don't know when the shoe is going to drop. And I think you're kind of living in a war zone. So I have empathy all, for everybody in the equation. I just think addiction is hard. Oh, absolutely. 
So what was the process like of you starting your recovery? Your husband's checked in and he's working his program, but were you already in therapy or did you seek out therapy at this time? I had gotten a therapist at the time that he um, started living his free life. The 17 and, days. Huh? Well, during that period, yeah, yeah, in the first couple yeah. days, I, I mean, I okay. called someone immediately. I mean, it was obvious right. he wasn't going to listen to me. And I, and I think probably I, I wanted, I wanted to know how to deal with it, you know, and I, and in retrospect, probably could have called the um, police for a wellness check or, I mean, there was a lot of things. I was just naive in a, in a lot of ways, you know, um, and I don't think my dad ever got that bad, you know, because I think my dad was told by his doctor early on and quit. But anyway, I had, I had to wait to get into the therapist. And then you guys maybe feel the same way, but that first appointment where the therapist and you have to tell all about yourself and bond and make that relationship. I don't like that. It's hard. <laughs> and but I was smart enough to pick somebody that really was similar to me around the same age and cared about her family and was married and you know what I mean? And she just was awesome for me. And she suggested I go back, you know, maybe to ACA or codependence anonymous, which I did. I mean, I signed up for everything. <laughs> I was just like, and they say in this Robert Weiss, this program, they say, if you pursue your recovery, the way you pursue your addiction, you're going to be okay. Mm. And I think I see a lot of that in you, Matt. And I think that was what I did for me. It was like, I'm going to thirst this. I'm going to drink this. I'm going to make me be okay. Because well but that's so unique for someone in your position to mm -hmm. recognize at all that you need recovery. Oh, you know, I didn't do anything wrong. I'm not the drinker. I'm not the one that needs recovery is, is, you know, what, what happens so often, but not only did you recognize that you needed something, but you dove in and that's, that's gotta have a lot to do with why you are where you are now. Well, and amazingly you found Dr. Weissman's theory of, you know, work hard, um, at your recovery as well as your addiction, because people may overlook that because there's, you have to really dig and dig to find codependency recovery, you know, marriage recovery. Codependence. Yeah. So he is really great because he understands our path as well. And I think what's missing in this bridge where it's hard for us to get together again is he, you're working on you and he's working on him. And then where's us? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and you still have the us because you have to pay the bills and you have the, the us where whatever, the work stuff, but not the fun stuff and not the intimate stuff and not the trust, which is huge and still in process. Because yeah. you don't, you know, for me, the, the, the gaslighting and the, and, and there's that part of the forgiveness where you have to forgive yourself because why didn't I know? I should have known. You know, I could have been that codependent person that followed him around and proved it, you know, but I didn't do that because I just figured, you know, I, I guess I have that freedom component too. People are going to do what they're going to do, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Since you've spoken so highly of him, um, can you, is prodependence is that the name of the book? Yeah, we should. it's 
Yeah, it's called Moving Beyond Codependency. And he speaks about the theory of codependency. I mean, when I am on our echo call with these wonderful women that are bright and articulate and intelligent and loving, um, they're in it and they're working on it because they care about this person. That's, in, that's part of their family that maybe has had good times in the family too. It's not like we're scrolling around the bar thinking we're gonna fix somebody and somehow codependency <laughs> gives people that idea that we're just so needy or you know, controlling. You know, we become that way in, in a unhealthy situation. And this just really, he's like, you're going to tell her there's something wrong with him, her when she's traumatized and she's been doing the best she can to keep the family together and, you know, take care of the kids and make sure the bills are paid while he's in his 28 day spa is what I called it for a while. <laughs> yeah. You're not the only one that feels that way. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And then it wasn't like that, but it's just like, you know, and here I am again, doing all the responsibility. You know, I, I've been a sing, you know, single before I can handle it. But anyway, that was the first step that he would just go in. And then uh, they put you in for five days. I'm like, no, because I'm like, five days is not enough. And, and luckily the social workers would talk to me. And so then he went back to the other place for 28 days. And then beyond there, um, I still had so much to do and I was still so traumatized that he went to sober living for a while, you know, and that's another story. And um, there's all kinds of things, but this, this is three years of story, but, but we're both better now. We're both better now. Let's, let's talk a little bit about that. I know one of the, the pieces of you both being better now, it's something that Sherry and I talk a lot about is the importance of resentment processing. The amends process in a 12-step program is all about the drinker making the, the, a list of, of people that they feel they owe amends to and then going out and doing that. And certainly for some people, that's a very therapeutic thing for the alcoholic that's in recovery. But it often doesn't land super well with the loved one who's heard apology after apology after apology and really doesn't want to be apologizing anymore. So the resentment processing is a little different. And I know that, that you, you've worked really hard on that. And we'd love to hear you explain what your process was for working on resentments. Well, okay. In recovery, you can only, rec you can only cover your own recovery, right? You can only handle your own recovery. And there are pitfalls in recovery, okay? And if you don't, he got a kind of a sponsor that was anti-relationship, which was hugely harmful to our relationship. Okay. So for me, the amends didn't even happen until after he'd moved back in and was living here for almost a year. That was hugely harmful for me. That was more trauma for me. So, um, because basically for me in the addiction process, it's like, my needs don't matter. My needs don't matter. My needs don't matter. And there's a lot of, there was, in my experience of the recovering alcoholic, there are lots of defensiveness, you know, and selfishness and still stubbornness. And we, you know, that makes me feel bad. And I'm like, so some of that I had had to stop. And I thought, well, if I am going to recover with him, then he's got to be able to give me presence 
and mm -hmm. emote with me. And, and this couldn't have happened earlier. I don't believe in our recovery. It couldn't have, but this is three years. So I made a list of the resentments I was still carrying because I was still having triggers. And I thought if I can just get that bad feeling and that energy out of me and express it and be, have him be present with me, that will heal me, that will help. He did it. It was great. And I was really thrilled and it, I appreciated and we didn't do it all at one time. And he understands there may be more later that come up for me. And he was willing to do that too. Um, it made me just have good thoughts about him for, you know, we did it over a three day period. Those two days, you know, in the thing, I just thought this is, this is a good thing. This is me being real again, you know? So it was just really helpful. You know, well, and I know that, his, go ahead. Was his response largely just acknowledging that what you were sharing, that, that is, that is your truth and, and, oh, you yeah. know, owning, the, owning that that happened is that, because I mean, yeah. it's amazing to me on the side of the street that I'm on, how impactful that is as opposed, you know, I just want to jump in and be like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Now can we move on? But it, just listening and listening and, and nodding my head, it turned out to be, was way more powerful than, than jumping in with apologies. Right. And there was only a couple that he kind of defended himself on, but the fact of listening was good, but I also wanted to see, and this might be different for someone else, you know, but for me, I wanted to see kind of an emotional response, like mm -hmm. a nod of a head or, you know, and I'm sorry in that moment or mm -hmm. I, or something that would let me know that he did not realize how deeply hurt I was because I don't think that the alcoholic one does. I don't think there's an awareness of how bad they're hurting us. I don't think there is. You know, I, I couldn't agree with you more. The, the process of active addiction is very selfish, but so is uh, recovery, certainly early recovery from alcoholism, because it's all about how am I going to not drink and what tools do I need to get in the sobriety mm -hmm. toolbox? And mm -hmm. how do I learn how to process emotions without drinking them away? There's so much work right. to be done that right. there's just no time left or brain right. space left to acknowledge right. the pain that's been inflicted on the people around us. Certainly right. the, the spouses, the person and the kids, the people we spend the most time with. So that, you know, acknowledging what you have to say and the feelings and the emotions and the trauma that you've been through. I mean, I, I totally get how important that is. And I just, I wish more people in my shoes, more alcoholics or alcoholics in early recovery understood how big a deal that is um, because it is. It, it, it's glossed over. I said, I'm sorry, let's move on. It, it, that isn't, that is, that doesn't fix it. This addictive thinking is another book that I've read, and that continues in my experience of it, where um, the behavior and the, the thinking continue in sobriety. And there was like, get over it, move on. A lot of just get over it, move on, which I, you know, mm. <laughs> <laughs> that's not what I like. <laughs> sure. And um, that was the dismissiveness, the minimization of what 
the actually was done, all of that I'm sure is the self-protection thing that goes on still. The withholding, gaslighting that they're not aware they're you know, doing a lot of that behavior kind of continues. So, and the emotions come back so slow or they don't want them. You know, he didn't want to deal with the emotion of it. You know, really, I think he shoved that, shoved that down. But for me, it's like, this hurt me emotionally, you know? So anyway, it really was helpful to do that. And I don't know why there isn't more of that in the couple's recovery. There's very few couples that recover together anymore. It, it's true. It, it's all, it, you know, we, we've looked for statistics and it's, it's hard to find them. I don't know that anyone has studied this specific side of it, but we like what we've looked for is what is the marriage success rate in couples that are in recovery. You can find lots of things about the marriage success rate of couples that are in active addiction. And as you would imagine, it's lower than the, <laughs> than the average success rate. Um, yeah. But but the six, but the couples that actually recover together once the alcohol is removed from the relationship, that's something I'm very curious about. And I wish, I wish that was something that had been widely studied, but just based on our anecdotal evidence, I think you're right. It's, it's really, really hard. So well, one, one commitment we had to each other is I'm not giving up my recovery for you and you're not giving up your recovery for me. So it was like, as long as I can, and we were both good on that. It's like, you know, that that was a commitment because without the recovery, neither one of us was going to be okay, much less the coupleship be okay. Well, so was- I, mean, it, I think I think you've just hit on why this is working for you both because so often the focus on the drinker is there, but the the focus on the needs of the loved one is just not. And then we want to move straight into relationship repair it, until we've. I, I love that you've said, look. I'm not going to steal your recovery from you and you're not going to steal my recovery from me. That's if we all did that, I think the, the, the chances of successful relationship recovery would be much better. Would you, would you talk a little bit about how is the relationship now? You about three years sober, right? How, yeah. how are things going? How's the marriage? Well, there's a consistency that I mm. like. Um, there is, you know, I told somebody this, but I mean, I asked the doctor if he was just a pathological liar at one point. So it's, <laughs> and I know because, you know, I didn't know. So anyway, but it's good to be able to um, trust that if he says it most of the time, it's true almost, you know, and if it isn't that the biggest difference is that I know it again, you know, it's I like there, I smell a skunk, you know, but no, that's not scum. But you kind of, you get so to- you trust re- yourself. Oh yeah. But that that was a long journey because I thought, mm-hmm. I felt bad about myself that I got so fooled and that I couldn't do anything. You know, really there was nothing I could do. And I think that I would, um, if I could say anything to the loved ones, really, there's nothing you could have done. You know, and I know that you feel really bad and you love this person, but this person's got to get it. And it was never up to me, you know. Um, The biggest thing that recovery taught me that maybe I needed to learn because of my family of origin. And it's not just, it's dysfunctional families. It's not just, and 99% of us come from dysfunctional families. People don't do things that they do because of me. 
you know, they do it because of them. And I cannot let it define my self-worth, you know? And I just think that for me, when I got that, it was like my ticket. And I don't know, without this wild joy ride that I've been on for three years, that I would have learned that to the capacity that I have to now love my dad more and forgive him, to, oh, honor my mother more and, you know, just understand how hard it was for her, you know, to forgive myself more, to even begin to forgive my husband more. And I'm not saying I'm done. I'm working on it. (laughs) So it's a process, but I think um, the emotional part of it doesn't come back. The empathy part of it doesn't come back for a, a long time, maybe a couple of years, maybe. And so it's a hard, slow process. That's another thing that I would tell people, you know, it's a deep wound. It's going to take some deep recovery and to be patient with yourself, you know, to have that presence with yourself, which we're not taught how to self-monitor or do any of that stuff, you know, in fam- our families. When you say you're not done, that's one of the things that I wanted to follow up on with you. You seem to be an eager learner. I mean, some people are reluctant learners, but you seem to thrive on the idea that there's more out there. Just this, we opened up this podcast talking about the letter to your mom. That to me, the, the, what I read in you, what I read from you is you had this experience. It was very emotional and you're like, okay, what's next? Like, there's got to be more out there because it's not just about checking recovery off your list and moving on, but you seem to be, you know, moving toward it in a personal growth direction, whether it's alcohol related or not, you just want to keep growing is, am I picking up what you're putting down? Is that how you feel about it? Yeah. And, and I, and I think I want you to know that it's still a process of recovery for me, that I don't have it all figured out. You know, one thing for certain is this is, this whole process has humbled me enough to know I don't have it all figured out and that I'm a work in progress. And, and um, I have an, I'm a kind of a scholar. I mean, I love to learn. I also have a very curious streak. I mean, there's a part of me that just wants to figure out what's gonna happen. You know, <laughs> I just wanna see. Um, so that, that maybe is an advantage for me. I've also been a coach of sorts and I love, I love to see other people get it and learn that is just and a mom and a teacher, you know, all that. So, and I've always been interested in personal growth. I just feel like we're here to evolve. We're here to be a better us in the world. And if the world is changing, we better change with it. Um, I love your guys's mission to put it out there, to educate people so that they know what effects alcohol can have because there's a group hypnosis going out in society all the time, you know, that's saying, drink up, you'll feel better. No, you'll get to a point where it doesn't make you feel better. It's damaging everything. And the last person to know that maybe is you. And I don't Mm -hmm. think there's enough awareness of that. So I love adding my voice to that quest with you. And, um, And now it's like the money, the way the money runs the culture. It's like, well, I'll hypnotize you into drinking. You'll have a problem, but we got your back in recovery. (laughs) So, you know, it's just, 
we need our hearts back. We need to be able to handle our own emotions. And I don't know, you know, I'm learning that it's a, a great thing to be able to teach someone how to self-soothe. We do it as moms with our kids somehow, but I think we don't know how to take care of ourselves. Sometimes we overextend. And that was the key piece that I was doing wrong because I was helping everybody, man. I was the... <laughs> to choose from here first you know can do i have the bandwidth do i have to focus on me was the biggest thing and if i start going off in lala if only you know whatever what if you know then i just focus on me and here and now so and i do think that there's a possibility you can recover your marriage but you know the thing is when when you start so devastated to even try is a gift for both people to do it. Like humbling, like you said, like just leveling, clearing, clearing things out. We're at the bottom. Well, and I know you don't like the word recovery, but I kind of, and this is what my knowing is now through from the last one is what, what has to happen. I think is I had to figure out I was good enough already. You know what I mean? That there were parts of me and when, and, and probably, you know, the addict is too, but it's just that he starts relying on something and then thinks it's going to make him bigger or better or stronger and gets carried away, you know, and to, for me, addiction and you, recovery and reclamation. So I have to reclaim myself and then discover myself. So what parts of me do I want to keep? And for me, it's like, stay balanced, you know, make sure you're okay first. You know, common sense. <laughs> it is, but it's not, uh, it's not easy to find. It's not easy to find, it you know, really and is. so to, to do a reclamation or the recovery, it's like there's a fire, but not everything is gone. You know, you don't just, and I think that's addictive thinking where you just cut and run or you burn it all down and you go start new. And it's just like, what is still good with us? You know, what can we still do together? You know, and for us, we bonded over recovery a lot. That's great. So, That's great to hear. And, and, and to not put the big, and, and I had no idea. I thought I was I'm so optimistic. Oh, he'll put down the booze and he'll be that sweet, affectionate, you know, I thought, you know, I was, I had no idea that the behaviors would continue, but they've used, you know, you use those behaviors for a long time to hide the booze. Right. Mm -hmm. So. I just think that to be okay, I think the confidence within one grows when they do their own recovery. And so that even if you didn't want the marriage to end, it may still, you know? And it, the marriage starts in a devastating state and you have to work through that, work through the resentments, listen to each other, but everybody commits to their marriage one day at a time. And that's what I didn't get. You know what I mean? It's like you, even if there was an addiction or even if there wasn't, it's still a daily commitment to this person, you know? Absolutely. And that's why communication is so good, you know? Just tell me, just we'll talk about it. Well, we can't thank you enough for your willingness to talk to us about it. I have to say, I wanna commend you both, you and your husband. Um, you know, he's, he's aware that you're doing this and, and supportive and I think, if I remember correctly from before we started recording, you said his 
his only wish was that you just tell the truth and be honest. And I, I think you've done him credit. And, um, I, you know, I, I appreciate the work that he's done three years sober is nothing to sneeze at the fact that he was able to do the resentment work with you, which is very, very difficult for an alcoholic in recovery. So I definitely commend him and just love the heck. We both just love the heck out of you, Karen. Um, <laughs> your, your willingness to communicate and share and be vulnerable and be honest and do it all with both empathy and enthusiasm. That's a rare trait and you do it in our Echoes of Recovery group, and now you're doing it here on this podcast. Um, I just, I, I think your brutal honesty um, with a dose of compassion is, <laughs> is just, it's, it's, uh, it's unique and remarkable. So thank you for joining us here on the Intoxicated Podcast, Karen. Thank you guys so much. It's been a pleasure. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.